functions as a service allow developers to run their code in a serverless environment. A developer can provide a function to a cloud provider, and the code for that function will be scheduled onto a container and executed whenever an event triggers that function. An event can mean many different things. An event is a signal that something has changed within your application. When you save a file to an Amazon S3 bucket, that creates an event. When a user signs up for your app, that can create an event. Functions as a service are allowing people to build applications completely out of managed cloud infrastructure. Apps can be fully serverless with managed databases, managed queuing systems, and APIs tied together by these serverless event-triggered functions. Today, there is not a consistent format for these events that are across different applications and different cloud providers, and the lack of consistent formatting makes it more difficult to stitch together these events across different environments. Ideally, events would be lightweight, they'd be easy to deserialize, they'd be easy to operate with, to interoperate with. The Cloud Events specification is a project within the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. It has the goal of creating a standard format for events. Doug Davis is the CTO for Developer Advocacy of Containers at Microsoft, and Doug joins the show to discuss how events and event-based programming works. He also talks about the need for the common format across cloud events. This show is a great complement to the other shows we've done about serverless computing, event-driven computing, and serverless infrastructure in general. We are looking for sponsors for Q1. If you're interested in sponsoring Software Engineering Daily, we reach about 50,000 developers on a regular basis. And if you are looking to advertise to developers, you can send us an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor, or you can tell your marketing director about it. We are also conducting a listener survey. We'd love to know what you are thinking when you listen to the show. What do you like? What do you dislike? What could we do better? And if you take that survey, there's a place where you can enter your email address and you can potentially win a piece of Software Engineering Daily swag, a hoodie or a t-shirt or a mug from the Software Engineering Daily store. And with that, let's get on with today's episode. Doug Davis, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. All right, thank you very much. Glad to be here. So we're talking today about functions as a service and events, and let's start with the topic of functions as a service. We've done a lot of shows on this. Why are functions as a service useful? So when I first was introduced to functions as a service and serverless in general, it was one of those things where I looked at it and said, okay, you're just, you're just deploying code. Why is this so special, right? And someone actually gave me a really, what I would call sort of a killer use case that really solidified it for me. And they said, let's say you have a, say an ACP server sitting there and it's you know your normal application. You send get, put, post requests to it all over HTTP, all, all that good stuff. But what if you realized that you only needed to, to really support, say, 
10 puts at a time per second, but you need to support a thousand gets at a time because your people are, you have your users are doing a whole bunch more queries than they are actually updating things, right? So in a normal world, if all that's one application or one bundle, you're going to have to scale that thing up to support you know, 100 or 1,000 per second, regardless of whether you're doing gets or puts. Well, with functions, you can now split that apart and say, you know what, I'm gonna scale just the get side of things, not the put side of things as much. And that's when it started sitting in, or solidifying in my head that said, that's cool, right? Because it takes that, that splitting up your monolith into microservices one step further and say, you know what, I got this tiny little bit over here that needs to scale, but I don't need to scale all the infrastructure behind it necessarily. So that's where a function in my head really plays a role is is the easeability of scaling you know bits of your of your larger business logic if that makes sense on these different cloud providers they've been implementing functions as a service whether it's AWS Lambda or Google Cloud Functions or OpenWhisk on IBM and there's a set of problems that each of these providers has to solve and as the you know the open source functions as a service platforms have have come up they're also solving these problems there's some problems around scheduling and rate limiting and the cold start problem and all of these problems around if you're loading a function onto a container on demand and then making it available to a developer to hit with a request on demand, there's a number of problems. Tell me about those problems. So I think you actually touched on, I think, probably the biggest one, which is, okay, in a serverless world, things are supposed to be able to scale down to zero so that you get the economy of cost, right? You you only have to pay for when you're actually using it. So you scale down to zero, no one's hitting your, your function, life is good, you don't have to pay for it. But the minute something comes in, if it's going to take a long period of time for that first instance to scale up, then, you know, you, yeah, sure, you may have been saving money, but is your business going to be hurt because it takes, you know, let's take an extreme case, 10 minutes for that first instance to scale up. No one's going to want that, right? So I think that's the biggest issue people are going to run into is, you know, how fastly, how fast can these things scale up in particular zero to one? But of course, it does apply for the rest of it in case you get a huge burst beyond one. But zero to one is usually the big ones that are, people are really, really concerned about. Each cloud provider is implementing their own function as a service platform today. How consistent is the experience across them for the developer? I probably can't necessarily comment about specific ones. I think it's probably just fair to say that you're right. A lot of them do have their own proprietary APIs. You are seeing some people pick up the open source version of things. You know, you have uh, OpenFAS, OpenWhisk, and I'm sure there are other open source ones out there. Obviously, any platform that picks up those, you're going to get portability, interoperability, and stuff. So the, the the options are out there, right? People may people choose, may choose to roll their own. I don't know. I just know some people are. I can't really comment about much beyond that, to be honest. So if I have a function that I want to run on one cloud provider, and then I want to go and take that function and run it on another cloud provider, am I going to have different experiences in terms of latency or other kinds of issues I might encounter? Obviously, you, you probably will, but that's true of everything, right? Every cloud provider is going to have different sets of sure. performance characteristics and stuff. So, I'm, And I wouldn't imagine functions are any different there. You've got to look at each provider to see what each one offers, I would imagine, yeah. Sure, right. Now, functions as a service are kind of interesting because initially they came out and they were on the cloud providers, but more and more you see 
smaller companies, not small companies, but smaller companies than the major cloud providers bolting on a function as a service platform. So companies like Salesforce or MongoDB or Auth0 are are adding serverless functionality that maybe they want to call in response to somebody authenticating, for example. Why is that useful? Why is it useful for all of these other service providers to also implement a function as a service platform? I would imagine, it's just speculation on my part, but I would imagine it's for the same reason we talked about earlier, which is you get the benefit of the the economic cost of being able to quickly scale up bits of the application without having to do the entire monolith you know, all at once kind of thing. I, I assume it comes down to basically that 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 aspect of it, right? Because that's what people tout as the benefit of serverless or functions. If you live in a serverless equals functions world, the entire reason to, to break things down to, you know, from the monolith to the microservice down to the function is because you want to do usually scaling, right? You know, you don't want to have to scale your entire monolith, so you break it to the mon- mon- microservice. Same, same, same thing with functions. So I'd imagine that's why those guys are doing it as well. They, they see a better economic value in that way or, or performance as well because it's easier to scale something if it's smaller, right? You can spin it up faster. Many of the patterns around using serverless functions involve evented models. Can you explain what an event is? So it's interesting. I think you might get a different answer depending on who you talk to, right? I think in the most puristic form, based upon what I've heard people talk about, an event is basically a one-way fire-and-forget type message, right? I think to other people, they have a little bit more liberal attitude towards it, where to them, in the function space, yeah, they think of it as, oh, an event comes in, but they're allowing a, res- a response to come back sometimes. And in a puristic world, maybe that's not an eventing type of operation, it's more re- request-response. But I think in, in the end, in my mind, it doesn't really matter. It's just some message comes into your function, and you're going to process it. If there's a response, how the response goes back to me is is a secondary concern. I don't I don't personally get hung up on the the puristic model that says, oh, if if there is a response per se, it has to go back over another asynchronous channel. I personally don't care if it flows back over the HTTP response flow. So there's this relationship between functions as a service and events. Explain what the relationship is there. So typically a function is going to get kicked off by an event, right? Because you function, if you think about what, what people talk about with functions and especially with serverless, when it scales down to zero, it's like, okay, you go down to zero. Well, when do you bring up that first instance? Something has to happen to kick it off. And that's usually, quote, an event, right? It could be an HTTP request coming in or something over transport coming in. It could be a, a cron job or, you know, signal kind of thing. Anything that basically comes in that acts as a trigger to force the function to get invoked or instantiated, that to me is an event. What are some examples of events being triggered and and uh, propagating to triggering other services? So the, give me give me kind of a typical a prototypical model of of some some event creation and event triggering of of serverless functions. So I think one of the classic ones I've heard is a one system that has the notion of a new user being created, right? So a new employee gets added to the system or something like that. An event gets fired that says, hey, employee Joe Smith has now been added. Other systems now get notified because they subscribe to that type of event, and then they can take the appropriate backend processing to propagate whatever is necessary to get that employee into all the various systems, into HR or whatever. You know, and they could, so they, they subscribe to those events and then take the appropriate processing, basically. 
if I work at a cloud provider, I'm responsible for managing tons and tons of events that are being created. So if somebody is, if I'm running this authentication service for people logging in, and every time there's a login, there's an event that gets created, I need to put those events somewhere. I need to manage how those events notify the other services in the system. How are cloud providers handling all of these events that are getting created across their system? So I'm not an expert in this particular space. So this is, think of it as speculation on my part, basically. But basically, I would assume it's basically some along the lines of a message bus kind of a thing, right? You put the events into a a queue, a channel, whatever you want to call it, and then it's probably going to get persisted. And then something's going to either send it off to someplace else or someone's going to come in and pull it off the queue or something like that. I would imagine it's a message bus type of environment, that classic middleware type stuff. So you might have just a, a publish subscribe system where the events are published to and then other systems are subscribed to. I think that's definitely it. one of the more popular models, yeah. Okay. So what if I want to use an event in one cloud provider to trigger a function in another cloud provider? The short answer to that one is I don't see the problem, right? Because typically um, when you start talking about events, talking about something flowing over the wire, as long as the receiver or consumer knows what to expect, right? The format of the events, you know, what metadata is supposed to be there so we could do proper processing of it, routing of it and stuff like that. Whether you're crossing cloud providers or it's all in one cloud provider technically should not matter. But in reality, different cloud services do produce different types of events, different formats of events. So does that create frictions in having cross-cloud eventing models? I wouldn't look at it as a problem of being a cross-cloud problem because either way, whether your consumer is in the same cloud or a different cloud, the consumer still has the problem of knowing what to expect, right? So whether, take the simple case of you're just going to look at the documentation for the event producer, right? He still has to know what to expect. So whether his consumer is living in one cloud versus another, that's not going to change the code he has to write in terms of the processing, right? So I I don't look at it as a a cross-cloud problem as much as just how does a consumer know what to expect from an event producer? So I think this brings us to the cloud events spec. Can you explain what the cloud event spec is? Sure. So the cloud event specification is a spec that's being developed under the CNCF. It's a sandbox project. It's basically designed to help in the routing of an event from one place to another, basically. The analogy I like to use is if you look at HTTP, it's a very simplistic protocol, even though there's lots you can do with it. At its very core, what you have is a bunch of HTTP headers, and in particular, a very small set of sort of required or standard ones, right? You got content type, content length, and then the, the header itself that says, you know, HTTP, post, whatever. You have a very small set of headers there, and then you have the body. And it, for the most part, HTTP doesn't say, or actually doesn't say at all, what goes in the body. That's application data, right? So it just says, here's a couple of headers to help you with the routing. That's what Cloud Events is trying to do. It's trying to define a set of standard bits of metadata that allows you to receive an event and know how to process it or route it properly to its proper destination. It's not going to get into defining what the body of the message is supposed to look like or what your cloud data, application data is supposed to look like. It just says, here are four or five properties that are help you to get the event from point A to point B. So it has things like a URI that defines what is the event type. So in case you have routing to different processors based upon whether it's you know a GitHub type of event versus some other object store type of event, you can properly route it based upon that. Uh, and there are a couple other ones which, for some unknown reason, escape me this vague moment, but something you know, simplistic along those lines that are there just for the routing purposes. Once it gets to the application, 
than the application can do its normal processing on the, if, on the application-specific data. So that's all we're doing, is defining the core little bit of properties and how those are serialized, both in formats like JSON, or how they appear on the wire in things like HTTP or MQTT and stuff like that. And that's really all we're doing. Very minimalistic to try to ease a little bit of the interoperability between producer and consumer in the eventing world, basically, if that makes sense. Well, tell me more about what you mean by routing. Like I said, if, when an event hits an endpoint, that endpoint needs to be able to route it to the proper location, right? In the same sense, in HTTP, when you look at the first line of the HTTP request, it says, you know, it's get versus put, and then there's a uh, the tail part of the URL, right? Well, the HTTP server is going to use that tail part of the URL to route it to the proper, use Java term, servlet, right? It's going to route it to the right spot. Well, you may need to do that same logic within your function infrastructure, right? The event type comes in, and it may say, I'm going to probably bastardize what GitHub actually does, but let's say it says github.issue.create, right? So maybe you have a function that's specifically set up to handle new GitHub issues, right? But not necessarily updating GitHub issues or deleting GitHub issues, or maybe they're separate functions. By using that one little piece of metadata, now the function infrastructure can route it to the proper function and let it do the processing at a smaller scale, right? I don't have to have one, forgive me, monolithic GitHub processor that handles all GitHub type of events. I can have one that does a GitHub uh, create scale differently than a GitHub delete type of operation or event, I should say. That makes sense? Well, so there's no specification that is, you know, widely used today, I don't believe. And and so what what are the penalties that we're paying in routing infrastructure because of the lack of a specification? Yeah, basically, I think what it comes down to is now every bit of function infrastructure has to pretty much do this on its own in a sense, or it has to have advanced knowledge of the types of events it can do or it's going to be asked to process if it wants to do that processing within the function infrastructure, right? Because if the function infrastructure doesn't have this knowledge or doesn't have advanced knowledge of the types of events coming in, all it can pretty much do is pass it on to the event, to the other system. Or you can invent some proprietary logic that says, oh, you know, based upon regex expressions, does the event coming in look like this with these types of headers? I can, as an application writer, maybe add some specialized logic through an extensibility point into the function infrastructure to do the routing for me. It may all be possible, but my gosh, what a pain in the butt that is to have to do it every single time. And every provider has to recreate the wheel on that stuff, right? Why not say, you know what? If you want to do routing based upon the type of events, that's where it's going to sit every single time when it's an HTTP request. So we just one URI in this HTTP header, and now you can do routing based upon that. It makes life easier for the, uh, for the function consumer, I'm sorry, the event consumer, basically. So it, I think it's worth pausing here to talk about the protocol format. So you have HTTP, AMQP, MQTT. This might sound really simple, and I'm sure some people really know this already, but maybe you could just explain what HTTP is in contrast to these other message formats, these other protocol formats, yeah. sorry. Okay, so I, I'm not an expert in the other protocols. Sure. And, and so I'm going to really dumb this down and just, and, and just say there are just different ways to serialize a message across the wire, right? right? HTTP has the format of there's headers, space, and then basically binary data, yeah. right? AMQP or MQTT, whatever other ones we have, they all have their own format for how things are going to appear on the wire. And that's really all it is. It's just a, a very clear definition of when... You start reading bytes off the wire, what to expect, where, and how to interpret it. And the headers are unserialized data? 
unserialized data. Or, or, yeah, or the headers, like, you know, you can basically learn context about the internal information by... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. So in the HTTP case, at least, yes, the, the, the headers are there to help you understand and process from a infrastructure perspective, the incoming message, right? So the HTTP headers, for example, will tell you where to route the message in terms of like what servlet to send it to, what, you know, our function. They'll also include a little bit of information, for example, of how to interpret the body of the HTTP message, right? What is the format? Is it JSON? Is it XML? Is it some kind of binary format? So that you don't necessarily have to complete, the infrastructure doesn't necessarily have to understand all different types of messages and formats that come in, all it has to know is how to interpret this little bit of metadata so it can send it off to the next chain or next thing in the chain for processing, and like the servlet as an example, or you know some kind of queuing system to stick into a queue kind of thing, right? It just needs to know how to, how to process at the infrastructure level to get it to the next hop in its processing. So the routing infrastructure wouldn't need to deserialize the entire message, it just needs to deserialize the header and then understand where to direct this message to. Exactly. Thank you for explaining it much better than I did. Yes, I, <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah, that, right. that's a great way to think of it. Yes, is is the infrastructure just needs to understand and, and, and know how to deserialize those headers. Everything else after that is application data. It doesn't have to touch and, and understand. Exactly. Yes. And so is the cloud event spec similar to this where you're just trying to make a, a a header specification? That would actually be a fair way to sort of think about it just to get your, your mind around it, yes. We are defining a set of properties that in the HTTP case can appear as HTTP headers that are really just there to help the infrastructure get a basic level of understanding of what this thing is that came in. So we could pass it along to the next step in the processing model. In the uh, cloud event space or the cloud event spec, we do allow those properties to appear in different ways. For example, in HTTP, we have the binary format, which allowed them to appear as HTTP headers, if that's the way you want to receive the message. But we also allow it to appear inside of the HTTP body. If, for example, you want the entire event serialized in, say, JSON, then we allow for those properties to appear in the JSON payload itself. And that way you don't have to necessarily deal with HTTP headers if you don't want to. We, we basically give you the choice. Uh, for some people, HTTP headers is an easier way to go because then you don't have to pay the cost of JSON deserialization. You can just pick them off as basically strings as HTTP headers. So we give you the, the flexibility to do what's best for your particular use case. So, well, maybe you could just describe what is in the cloud event spec? Like if, if I'm making my event and I want it to conform to the cloud event spec as it stands today, what, what does that look like? Right. So as I said, the, the cloud event spec defines, I think, basically four properties. And then there's a fifth one that says what level of, H, of the cloud event spec this thing adheres to. And those four properties are basically very simple things like the time the event was sent. Hey, I'm sorry to remember. The, t- the event type, the event time, a unique identifier for the event. So you can do deduping if you want to do something like that. So you have those fields I just described. And really, in order for an HTTP message coming into a system to be, quote, a cloud event message, really all you have to do is add those four properties as HTTP headers with the names that we provide in the spec. And suddenly it's a conformant cloud event, HTTP event. That's really all it is. Add those properties and you're good to go. And if I'm a cloud provider, let's say I have a bucket storage system and people are uploading images to their buckets and they want to see events that are created from those buckets because maybe they want to trigger a function that compresses their image that they just put into the bucket. So they want to have this evented workflow. They want to have the function that does the compression. If I'm that cloud provider, why do I want to 
make the the events that are created by that bucket storage system, why do I care about the cloud event specification? Why do I want to make my events adhere to that? So from my point of view, it comes down to reducing the friction for people using your, your system, right? If, if, if you have a, an event consumer that wants to hook up to particular object stores in this particular case, they may choose one that allows them to use their existing code base, right? So if their existing code base supports cloud events, then they may be more likely to pick another event producer, in this case, the object store system, that is already producing events in that particular format. It just eases the pain of doing the integration. And I'm not going to kid myself, right? It's not, it's not going to necessarily completely sell somebody on that particular cloud provider. I mean, it is just a tiny little thing in the big scheme of things in terms of what you're going to look at in terms of choosing a cloud provider. But every little bit helps. And this is just the first step in the process for the serverless working group in the CNCF, right? We looked at uh, some different things we could look at in terms of reducing interop- the pain point, increase inter- interoperability. And the event format was one thing we thought, okay, maybe we could start here as a low-hanging fruit. When this is done, we're going to look at what is the next, hopefully, piece of low-hanging fruit that we could pull off and start looking to harmonize at that point is, again, just slowly reduce the pain of interoperability and integration between systems. So looking at this another way, if I'm a service owner today and I want to build my system to respond to events, what are the frictions that I'm encountering because I'm trying to build these evented systems and I'm not getting a consistent experience? Yeah, I think it just comes down to how much work you're going to require people hooking up to your system to do is what it comes down to. If, if every single cloud provider, which actually we're seeing probably today, you know, basically rolls their own events and everything has their own formats and stuff. Yes, people survive but it's not optimal and it forces people to think way too much about a layer that they should not have to think about, right? If we can, every step we take to allowing people to focus more on their business logic and less on infrastructure, I consider a step in the right direction to making the developer's life easier so they can be more productive and get their products out there faster to market, basically. And so if I'm that developer today that's building something that responds to events from a cloud provider... I'm still having trouble understanding what the lack of a specification, like if there's no specification widely adopted today, why is this impacting me? Like I'm not, I'm not writing routing infrastructure, right? Like I'm just writing, I'm just saying like, hey, event, come hit my system. I don't see any of the middleware in between. You're right. I, th- I think you're probably right that if all you're concerned about is sort of the, the tail end of the processing of the event, unless I'm missing it, you are probably right. You probably don't care too much about that. But if you have to do any kind of routing at all, and maybe this is more in the middleware layers, then I think this is where it plays a key role, right? Because then, because that is your purpose in life and as middleware is to do the proper routing to send to the next hop. If you are the last hop and all you care about at that point is the business logic, then you're right. It may not play as a critical role there. So this may actually be more for the leading parts of the chain of, of processing. I see. So if that's, that part is handled by the cloud providers, right? Like the routing infrastructure yeah, for the, the events? Yeah, the, the function infrastructure basically is, is hopefully there to help route the event hitting the system to the proper function, yes. Right, okay. And so if I'm that cloud provider and I need to route the cloud events intelligently to the right services to you know that are subscribed to them, what does that routing infrastructure have to do? Does it have to like deserialize certain parts of the cloud event because it's consistent metadata and so we know where all these different fields are or what what is a cloud provider 
building to be able to respond intelligently to cloud events. Yeah, I, I think you basically nailed it on the head, right? Every every time an event comes into a cloud provider so the cloud provider can write it, route it properly, he then has to understand what that data coming in looks like, right? To say it's just HTTP may not be sufficient, right? He may have to, because he may provide to his to his users the ability to say, at this particular URL, if you see this type of event, send it to this function. If you see this type of event, route it to that function over there. If the cloud provider has to understand every different type of message coming in, even though they're all HTTP, but if the metadata is that he's looking for is in different places based upon the event producer, that's a pain in the butt to have to support all those different event producers, right? But if we can get them all to say, no, we're going to stick the event type for routing purposes in one particular place in the HTTP message, that makes their life easier and they don't have to add a different in essence, routing uh, logic for every different type of event consumer out there. I'm sorry, event producer. So the end result is probably going to be for developers that these events process faster, or what? how does my experience as a developer change? That's an interesting question, because actually, to be honest, this is something I haven't, I haven't really thought much about, because I, I've been thinking about more from the from the I guess the more the middleware perspective because based upon like the previous question you're asking right if for the tail end of the processing that thing that's gonna that that's gonna receive the event it's gonna look at the business uh, data and process it from a business logic perspective and at that point it may not necessarily care about the cloud event properties at that point. So from the, from the function developer's point of view, if he's not doing any routing and doesn't necessarily need to necessarily understand those common properties, it may not help him much. But the question is whether there are certain applications that would still benefit from that information, right? Maybe they're not necessarily doing routing. Maybe they're doing something else with it for some other reason that I just can't think of right now. Having that common metadata that's available for every single event coming in still may be useful. For example, there is an ID in there, right? Maybe they first want to see, have I seen this event before, right? So maybe the, the function of the service infrastructure isn't going to do deduping, but your business logic may need to, right? That event ID being in a consist- consistent spot allows you to perhaps put that into a common function that all your business logic can now use as a utility kind of thing. Just something off the top of my head as a possibility. Sure. So it may impact them from that perspective. Sure. Whereas today, you know, different cloud providers have bespoke eventing identification systems. So maybe even if you have an ID for all of your different functions or all of your different events, if they're coming from different cloud providers, then maybe the ID is in different places and you have to deserialize the entire event in order to find that ID. Exactly. Actually, that's an excellent point. And we may have mentioned this earlier. You're right. It not only does it provide a consistent spot to look for the information, but because we extracted it from the business logic itself, you can very quickly look at that metadata and do some quick processing on it. For example, delete the message because you've already seen it based upon the ID without having to, one, understand the business logic data and to deserialize it and, and understand it to find out you know, where that ID actually is in the message. So yeah, you're, you're nailing it right on the head, yes. So the reason we're talking is because I think you're is it the you're in the cloud events working group? Is it a working group? It's not a working group. It's a it's a project. It's a it's project. a sandbox project in the CNCF. Yes. Okay. How did that come together, and who is in it? So I'm trying to remember how far back it was. I want to say about a year and a half or so ago, 
the CNCF uh, Technical Oversight Committee, like everybody else, started hearing about serverless, and they wanted to know more about it. So a working group was formed called the Serverless Working Group, whose purpose in life was to basically explain what is serverless, how is it different than platform as a service, container as a service, what's the difference between function as a service versus serverless, when would you use each one of them, basically just lay out the landscape of what it's all about, okay, and also provide information about what people are doing out there today, right, all what are the open source serverless providers out there, or product or open source projects out there? What are the proprietary offerings out there? What are the serverless or function as a service uh, services that people use as backend services type of things, right? Basically lay out the full landscape for the people. But then the key thing that we also did was lay out some recommendations for the CNCF for what they should do, if anything, about serverless. You know, maybe we should, maybe we could have come back and said, eh, interesting technology, but it's not worth our time, right? We didn't say that, obviously. One of the recommendations, however, we did have was we should look for opportunities to find some level of harmonization or standardization, right? Can we reduce some of the pain points that we've been talking about so far? And one of the low-hanging fruit that I mentioned, uh, obviously, was cloud events and said, okay, most of serverless involves functions. It's not just functions. To, you know, to some people, serverless can be other things besides functions. But a lot of people do look at it as, as functions. And a lot of functions are kicked off by events. So can we provide some little interoperability for the eventing infrastructure that we've been talking about the entire time here? And so we started looking at that and, and we came up with a rough draft specification for what the cloud events might look like or the, the cloud event spec might look like. And then we took it back to the technical oversight committee and said, we want to form a project around this as an incubator project. And they said, yep, looks good, go off and do it. So we created a sandbox project under the CNCF and there we are. That's how we, that's how we kind of got started. It was an offshoot from the serverless working group. It's basically the same group of people within the serverless working group. In terms of players there, since you asked, you pretty much have all the major players there in terms of cloud providers. I'm not going to rattle off the names mainly because I'm, I'm afraid of leaving one off and upsetting them. But we, also, but we have all the major cloud providers, and we also have a fair number of end users, too. You know, big companies who are, who are not cloud providers but actually use this stuff, and they're there contributing on a regular basis to make sure that their use cases are understood and taken into account as we go forward in this space. When did the cloud events spec start focusing specifically on the set of metadata this as opposed to deciding other things like i don't know that the size of the event or the message of the event or basically from the beginning from the beginning yeah the entire notion here was as i said i think one of the first questions our goal here was not to boil the ocean or to create yet another common event format that has been tried many times in the past we wanted to basically look at what is the bare minimum to help get the message from point A to point B. And so we focused on, in order to do that, let's look at the metadata needed to do that routing. And that's basically how it got started. It was just, what is the bare minimum data a receiver needs to basically process the message to pass it along to the next hop? And that's, you know, four or five bits of meta pieces of properties, metadata things. Is it is size a constraint or does it, is, does it matter how big these events are? Well, obviously, to the infrastructure, it may matter, but from to the cloud event specification, it does not matter. Actually, we, we, like for example, we don't have any have a property called content length like HTTP does. We don't care about that. If the transport or the function infrastructure or the producer versus consumer have those kind of constraints, they're welcome to, to solve that problem themselves. We're not there to help solve that particular problem. We're there just to get the message from point A to point B, and if it doesn't have if it doesn't involve 
routing per se, we're not going to touch it and we're not going to try to tell people how to get that, those other jobs done. Maybe that's something we look at in the future for other things, but that, that's not the purpose of the cloud event spec. There are other, other people who are going to look at those problems. So tell me more about the deliberations that go on in the project. Can you elaborate on how do we make decisions kind of thing? Yeah, how do you make decisions and what are the, I guess, what are the debates right now and how willing are people to adopt the cloud event spec? Those are two very different questions. Okay, let's start with the deliberations first. Yes. It's pretty much what you might expect in terms of people come forward to the group with an idea. We're doing this all through through GitHub issues and pull requests. So someone says, I have an idea. If it's still sort of in, in its infancy, they may open up a GitHub issue, and then we have some discussions about the issue. But ultimately, if someone is really serious about it and wants to be a champion of that particular change they want to see, Eventually, they're going to open up a pull request, which is pretty much a pull request to change the text in the specification. And then we have discussions about it, typically through the PR itself, through, through comments. And we have weekly calls, and we discuss some of those pull requests on there. Because we only meet once a week for an hour, we actually try to limit deep technical discussions on the phone calls, because otherwise you could rattle really, really easily, as you can imagine, right? So when this seems like there's... Uh, strong disagreements in terms of how to proceed on a particular problem, more often than not, what we'll do is we'll say, can you guys who really care passionately about this issue, take it offline, go discuss it, take as long as you need, but then come back with, with basically a joint proposal for the rest of the group to consider. That way, to be blunt, all the contentious work is done by those guys who really, really care about it. And then the working group, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't call it work group, the project can then basically look at the end result and say yes or no, you know, to it, and they don't have to necessarily get into a deep dive dis- arguments about it. They may have a deep discussion about it to make sure they understand it, but typically by that point, it it kind of comes down to a yes no vote kind of a thing. And so it's relatively straightforward process. I think we've been very successful with it. We actually haven't actually had that many uh, disagreements, which is really kind of bizarre. Because as you might imagine with most anything, people tend to have very strong opinions about certain things, but we've been really lucky. Most people have had similar goals here. They want to keep it down to the minimal thing. And when you only have four or five properties, there's not a whole lot to to bicker about, right? (laughs) And so a lot of it comes down to things like, oh, are we going to, you know, restrict the character set of this or some way? How are we going to make life easier? For example, we had a long discussion about uh, the property names. It may sound silly, but we that was one of the longer discussions was, do we allow upper and lowercase letters? You know, do we allow underscores? All the various things that go into it. And it wasn't that we all necessarily disagreed as much as we, we had a long discussion to try to make sure that we picked the right character set to make it as easy as possible for people to support it. Because, for example, not all transports, for example, are case sensitive. Some are, some aren't. That's going to be a pain in the butt when you have to take the cloud event and move it from one transport to another. You may lose some information as you move from case sensitive to not case sensitive, right? So those kind of things came up. And it wasn't really that we were even necessarily bickering. It was just we had, we had to take the time to make sure we got the right answer and yet make it make sure that it actually solved the right problem going forward. So that's kind of how we work right now. And it's been a really, really enjoyable experience because one of the things that's also a risk when you start getting collaboration from so many companies like we have, which by the way, on the average, we have 30 people on a regular basis on average every week joining our phone calls, which in my opinion is actually really, really high for other working groups that I've seen. So that shows the commitment that we have in the, in the group. I, I've seen very little politicking, put it that way. Because a lot of times in these groups, people may want to push their own agenda or their own products, needs and stuff like that. I've seen very, very little of that at all. It's been a very, very fun group to work with from that perspective. 
Cool. Okay. So the latter question. Uh, how <laughs> the one I was trying to avoid. No. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's worth even explaining like why this would be annoying to implement if you are a cloud provider or why you would not want to implement it. If you know, you've already got events being created across your infrastructure. Why wouldn't you want to adhere to the cloud event spec? Honestly, I have no idea. To me, it's a, it's a no-brainer. It is an incredibly low-cost thing to support. Now, I'm not going to sit there and say every single event that every single event producer should produce, uh, that, that they produce, should, should be in a cloud event format. That's a choice they're going to have to make on their own. But I think it does make sense to perhaps allow for people, when they subscribe, to specify that they want it in a cloud event format, right? That way, they, they as a consumer, they, that can make their life easier. I mean, ideally, yes, I would love it if everybody looked at this and said, you know what? I can add these additional HTTP headers to my message. It's not going to impact anything. It's only four little headers. But if it makes my thing more interoperable and makes people even the inkling more inclined to subscribe to me as opposed to somebody else or to use me as their service provider, why not do it? It's like I said, it's four little properties. If it makes my life easier for people, why not do it? Well, let's say you're the function as a service provider who has completely dominant market share like (laughs) hypothetically (laughs) hypothetically those exist i didn't know that those (laughs) exist so if i'm the function as a service provider with 95 percent market share and i've got a bunch of other cloud providers that are suggesting to me in this in this group like hey what if you just add these other headers you know it would really help out interoperability and so on what do i have to gain for doing that so let me answer it this way, because it kind of gets into an area that I, I, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure I feel comfortable answering it. <laughs> so let me answer it this way. I think in general, the consensus from the community and our users in particular is that interoperability and portability of their applications between providers or or be able to interrupt with your different backend system, not backend system, with your various cloud service providers is a goal that everybody wants because people do not want vendor lock-in. And I think it's to everybody's benefit to reduce those friction and pain points, road roadblocks, whatever you want to call them, for people so they can focus on their business logic. I think in the end, cloud providers that allow people to focus on their business logic and less on infrastructure are probably going to be the ones that people might gravitate to in the long run. And that's, the, that's kind of the way I just tend to look at it. Tell me more about what you think multi-cloud looks like. I get the sense that in, in another six months, 12 months, 18 months, 24 months, we're going to be talking a lot more about multi-cloud. So, okay, obviously we're leaving the boundaries of cloud events and serverless. Well, to some degree. I mean, yeah. there's, you know, there's... I mean, multi-cloud to me is basically you're not being forced to use one cloud provider for everything, right? You're, you're spreading your, your workload across different cloud providers. And again, that's where I think interoperability, portability is all going to come into play. So you can choose the right cloud provider for that part of your application if you choose to spread it out. And how will those decisions be made? So if I'm already on one cloud provider, what are going to be my reasons for choosing services on other cloud providers? I would assume it's pretty much the obvious things, right? Functionality, cost, performance, you know, whatever characteristics you want to lump into those. I think those are the things people are going to obviously look at at first, you know? Yeah. So what do you think is going to be the longer-term impact of people moving to functions as a service for development? How is it going to change architectures? Honestly, and this is just, just my personal opinion here, I don't know because I'm not sure we as a community completely know 
when functions versus microservices versus just flat out containers versus VMs, I'm not sure we actually have a clear story yet on when each one is supposed to be used definitively yet, right? I think in function, I mean, well, actually, I guess that's not 100% accurate because I think a lot of times people do kind of know, okay, VM may be overkill for some things, container might be better. But I think it's a little bit fuzzier when you start breaking it down all the way down to a function level. It, because obviously, if you go too far and you try to take your, your monolith and split it up into nothing but functions, you're going to have a whole different set of problems at that point, right? You now not have one thing to manage and deploy. You now have a thousand things to manage and deploy. You then have to worry about the networking management between all those things. It's not something that you necessarily want to jump into lightly, right? And so when you choose to do a function versus a container as a service versus a application at the platform as a service level, I'm not sure there's a clear answer yet for those. So I'm not sure what the architecture is going to look like going forward. I think we're still sort of in this investigative sort of educational period for everybody, consumers as well as providers. And honestly, I think, I think some projects like Knative are actually going to help, possibly help form that answer. Because, it, and this may sound almost contradictory what I was saying, but when I look at projects like Knative, it's almost blurring the lines between some of those things. Because Knative, in my mind, or maybe it's a whole wishful thinking, is, is basically looking more at it like, just give me your code or your container, if that's what you want, and I'll host it for you. I'll auto-scale it for you. I'll scale it down to zero if I can, if that's what you want me to do for you, right? I'll set up the routes for you, right? So whether that thing that you're hosting is a, quote, function, whether it's a traditional application from a PaaS perspective or just a container from a container as a service, it becomes less interesting from a infrastructure perspective. And now it's more back on the user to say, how do I want to break up my application? What is best for me, right? Which pieces do I want to scale independently from the rest of it based upon my business needs or my, or whatever, whatever criteria I want to place on myself, right? I can now start worrying less about my infrastructure and figure out what's best for my business. And I think that's where the, all the education comes to play and best practices to guide people to help make those decisions. I think that's going to really help shape things out. But how it's going to look, I don't know for sure. I'm doing a show about Knative tomorrow, actually. Can you tell me like what is exciting about it to you? I've done a little bit of research on it at this point. but I think to me, the exciting thing is actually what I just said in the sense that it's blurring the line between PaaS, CAS, and FAS. Because I think from an end user point of view, by the way, PaaS being I'm sorry, like platform as a service. So well, oh. that's like Kubernetes as a service versus container instances as a service versus functions. As a service. Actually, I look at it slightly differently. I know some people look at uh, at Kubernetes as a PaaS. I tend to look at it more as a container as a service, okay. and maybe it's because I'm too low level and I'm a Kubernetes developer. I tend to look at a PaaS more like Cloud Foundry. Right, where you basically give us your code while Cloud Foundry does support giving them a container. They started out saying, just give me your code, I'll compile it for you, and I'll host it for you. Right? That to me is a traditional PaaS. Then you have the container as a service, the CAS stuff, and that's more along the lines of, I don't care how you compile it, you're, you as a developer are going to compile it, you just give me a container, I'll host it for you. Right? Now in the fast space, it's funny, we're actually getting more back towards the PaaS world, right? Because a lot of function as a service people, including Knative, are saying, give us your code again, right? So you've gone full circle from that perspective, but they do support giving a container and not just code. So what, I, what excites me about Knative is that it is kind of blurring those lines and it gets, it gets the application developer away from necessarily thinking about their infrastructure, right? And more about what is best for me to, and how do I want to write my application? In the same way they can choose whatever language they want, 
I want them to be able to just say, you know what, I want this part of my application to be only this big and scaled independently from the rest. And I don't want to necessarily have to care about whether it's a quote function, is it going to be done as a container, is it going to be done as a, as a pass kind of a thing. I don't want them to have to think about that. And if Knative can get us towards that model where they just focus on take the code, give it to somebody else, or if they really want to give it, take a container, fine, give them the container, and they, they'll host it for me and they'll figure out or manage all the other stuff for me, networking, whether it's, you know, how it's scaled, do all that for me. That makes the developer's life easier, and that's what really excites me about it. Okay. Doug Davis, thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Wow.